a small boy, maybe around uh, four years old or so, asked me on a Sunday morning if I thought God would show up today. He asked it eagerly, not cynically, as though repeating something he heard his father toss off sarcastically. I told him I thought there was a very good chance of it. Did he hope for it? And after a long pause, he said, well, he didn't know. He thought it, the thought of it sort of scared him. And this brought to mind my own memory from about the same age as my new acquaintance, the earliest memory I have, actually, of being in church. During Sunday worship, I sat on the edge of my pew, waiting for God to make a grand entrance. I had my eyes glued on an elaborately carved altarpiece at the back of the chancel, thinking God would emerge from the shadows behind. I was both excited and scared, I guess. Needless to say, God did not appear in the manner I was anticipating. And I suppose I could say I've had my focus fixed on that spot ever since. Waiting expectantly, hopefully. with just enough fear to make my desire honest. After all, it's God we're speaking about here, the one who flung the stars into distant space and the one who fashioned life out of dust, breathing in the breath. That one. Childhood dreams are washed away by adult realities, of course. The child's imagination succumbs to the onslaught of secular education and the demand for sticking to the tangible and material. The five physical senses have pride of place in our culture over the one unnamed and underutilized sense that has a bead on mystery and transcendence. Spiritual yearnings get short shrift in educational and family settings, in our culture generally, which is otherwise overfull with busy stuff and distractions. The wonderment about life, its origins and meaning and purpose, gets lost in the din. Interestingly, this can even happen in the church, within the church. Adult religion is often stripped of in an intimate sense of the transcendent. And this can happen in both the conservative and liberal settings that gather in the rather comfortable state of being quite clear about whom God is or is not, having honed it down to a proper set of propositions. In this sense, God becomes more of an idea than a living dynamic reality in the present moment. Forms of prayer can seem 
anachronistic or artificial, certainly nothing that really amounts to much now that we've outgrown childish fantasies and superstitions. And true enough, there are plenty of superstitions we ought to leave behind. There is, as you know, a lot of bad religion out there, neurotic religion, narcissistic religion, destructive religion. Some of us know about this quite personally. And you know people who are persuaded that all religion is bad, or at best simply irrelevant. For them to be an adult means in part leaving behind in the toy box what they might refer to as the crutch or delusion of God. For me, that would be like leaving my heart behind in the toy box or my soul. That precious aspect of my essential identity I have never understood why so many people do not see this the way I do. That is, don't see God lurking everywhere behind creation and sense God mixed up in the air of every breath they take. This is a great conundrum to me that what I know to be the deepest, most essential truth would be for others a curious improbability. You can tell the designers of this space understood what I'm talking about. We can surmise by the results of their obvious effort and investment of resources that they thought God should be seen and heard. That wonder was an important component of life that art and music actually opened up windows and doorways in a way that, left to our own devices, we might remain closed and shut down. If not, this was a horribly expensive folly, wasn't it? And you know there are plenty of New Yorkers who think that, of course, really. They think that the purpose for which this place was built is complete bunk. Although they like that it sits here on the corner as opposed to, say, another high-rise condominium. They may like that they live in a city with useless but very attractive cultural artifacts. You know, when I first moved into the city, At the tail end of a hot building boom, I was routinely telephoned by real estate developers who shared the exact same rap with me. Reverend, did you know that you're sitting on one of the five most valuable undeveloped properties in all of New York? And I repeated the same response every time. And here I thought it was developed. (laughs) Gosh. We're looking at the same piece of property and see two entirely different things. Isn't that interesting? And we've often reflected, you and I, 
that when you make your way into a place like this on a Sunday morning in this city, you're behaving counterculturally. You know that many, if, if not most, of your friends and business associates did not go to a religious observance this weekend, right? And they're not entirely certain what to make of those who do. That's crossed your mind. From their vantage point, it's a bit strange that people choose to gather in these decorative buildings on an otherwise perfectly fine Sunday morning, singing songs about someone named God and reading opaque and ancient writings while practicing esoteric rituals with people wearing blue and white robes. But then that's all part of the mystery we're marketing here. We use imaginative means and materials to hook all of our senses so that the underused sixth sense might be tweaked into life. We take that four-year-old's wonder very seriously. As though it just might be the most important thing there is. To be completely truthful, what I think we're really selling here is change. You know, if we were simply concerned with portraying an entertaining idea about God and leave it at that, church would be a bit like a religious zoo with our version of God safely caged. With the passing of the plate, we'd pay our price of admission, throw a few peanuts in the direction of that which we've come to see and be on our way. But what we're really selling here is God uncaged. God on God's own terms. But to actually allow for that possibility requires a break with the status quo in our lives. It requires an expectation like that of my young four-year-old friend asking if God would be showing up on a Sunday, maybe. I'm reminded of Jesus once commenting that unless we become like little children, we will never find the kingdom of God. Children, you know, have an innocent anticipation of what they do not know because they know so very little, really. Can we admit like children how little we actually know and how little we actually control beyond our masquerades of competence and mastery? Annie Dillard offered this observation. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It's madness to wear hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return.
You know, we don't know what happened on Mount Sinai as Moses led the Hebrew people from captivity in Egypt, but we do know this, that whatever happened released a torrent of spiritual energy which transformed Israel into a people of priests and prophets, bringing enlightenment to humanity and establishing a course of human civilization to the present day. That's what the story is about. God unleashed! It changed people's lives in the course of history, you see. In the Gospel passage concerning the disciples' vision of a transfigured Jesus, the Sinai experience is recalled, isn't it? Again, on the mountaintop, again with all of the mystical hoo-ha and glory. Peter reports that Jesus was changed. When they looked at him in one direction, it was the same old Jesus. But then again, looking in a different way, they were astonished and rattled by glory, as the story is told. The witnesses would be changed as well, wouldn't they? But they wouldn't get the full force of it until some time later, after they descended the mountain and got on with life. And then it finally hit them full on. Commenting on the transfiguration, Harry Emerson Fosdick said, an inner transformation took place in Jesus. Faith replaced fear, strength for anxiety, confidence for hesitation, inward power adequate for outward tension. That showed in his face. And tell me if that experience had happened to you, that you would be changed utterly. Would you dare pray for such a thing? Walking in here? And you know, ultimately, it would show in the faces of Jesus' witnesses, and the spiritual power released through them brings us to this moment, 2,000 years later. The 40-something man said he wanted to speak with me during the week as he left the sanctuary, I did not know him. He had been profoundly shaken. Monday morning he called me. He was agitated, needed to meet. We met that afternoon. He wasn't sure what had happened, he said. He even felt a bit childish. I thought that was a good sign. Something had turned him upside down. Something I had said sliced like a knife into a deep part of him. He added, No offense, but I didn't even think the sermon was all that good. <laughs> I took that as a good sign. Nevertheless, it was during the music following that he felt a deep incision. He said he couldn't stand for the offering hymn. His knees were wobbly when he finally got up to leave. I learned he was a successful corporate officer, a Harvard MBA. Traveled all over the world. Had dropped in on a church off and on. 
But this was different. He was like a kid in Sunday school. His words. Imagine that, he said. I went to church and found God. That's, those are his exact words. And he was shocked that such a thing was possible. And you know, he had the same look of excitement, fear, and confusion as the boy who asked me if God would be showing up on a Sunday a while ago. I swear to God. I'm going to leave it there.